Welcome to Real Life Rescues, a podcast that's going to go behind the scenes and take an in-depth look into the operational and personal accounts of EMS first responders from Israel's largest fully volunteer EMS provider, United Atzala. Any volunteers available in Beit Shemesh across from the Noach Ayalat trails? Any units available in Tamaria near the Kinara for an 11-year-old boy pulled into the water, possibly drowning? Angel 7 is in the water with the boat. Backup units needed at Hi, welcome to another episode of Real Life Rescues. I'm Raphael. And I'm Dovi. And it's been a while since we last spoke. It certainly has. I think it's over almost six months, August until now. It's well, been- we were having high holidays and then we've had a hell of a war here. Yes. We're recording this on day 102 of the Iron Swords War that started uh, with the, the massacres of October 7th in Israel. A day that will not be forgotten, I think, for generations yes, here it- in Israel. Unfortunately, and and it was not something we we wanted in any way, shape, or form. We were all taken by surprise at, at what exactly happened. And we'll share we'll share a little bit of a, of the October seventh events from an EMS perspective, and and you know, and the crazy, wacky stories. Maybe if you want to call them miracles, uh, if you want to go that far. Uh, that took place with a lot of our responders. There is, there is no question. It was a day of horror, terror, and many, many heroic actions, and a lot, a lot of miracles. Absolutely. But unfortunately, as we know with war, not everything is uh, ends well. United Solo had two of our volunteers killed on October seventh itself. We had a number of others injured. We had one who was taken hostage. A number of family members of our volunteers were taken hostage as well. And as the war continued, we we lost another two volunteers. Paramedics. Yeah. Combat medics that were uh, fallen in service. So it's definitely taken its toll and it's hit close to home, I think, with everyone in the country. I actually just yesterday, I went to the home of one of my friends from my community, a combat paramedic who who was killed and paid my respects to the family. And it's it's really hitting everybody around the country and, and still ongoing. When you say close to home... I would say that's an understatement because it literally, literally hit close to home. Let's go back to October 7th, 6.29 a.m. October 7th is a Saturday here. It's a holiday and the country's sort of sleeping. 6.30 in the morning when air raid sirens start going off all over Israel with a massive, massive rocket attack on all major cities in Israel. And of course, on the towns surrounding the Gaza Strip. And we understand immediately that this is not any typical uh, missile attack on Israel. The amount of missiles, uh, the, um, what's the word for it? The the power, the firepower that was used here uh, immediately made us suspect that it's a being a diversion for something greater. We did not know how much greater it took us a little longer to really understand what was actually going on. Right. And, and the first volunteers who, who felt it and who started reporting into dispatch were the volunteers who lived there, who were running to their own shelters in their homes because the air, the air raid sirens were going. And 
Then something else happened. Then they started getting calls of, you know, in their local towns from dispatch, but also just from other people in the community saying, please come and help. There's people being shot. There's people being. So, so let's put it into the EMS yeah. perspective. Okay. The 911 center is starting to receive phone calls from multiple towns and, and villages uh, in the Southern region. At the beginning, it was of, of, of what people were thought were uh, missiles falling on their houses. And then a short while, I'm talking minutes later, uh, we're starting to get calls of gunshots. And and that doesn't usually fit the uh, description of a missile attack. It's not the normal scenario. Like, exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll back up a, a second here. We'll take it back a notch. Take it back a notch. Uh, I, I took one from you. Uh, we'll take it back a notch. Uh, Israel's been receiving rockets from the Gaza Strip since 2001. Uh, was the first rocket fired. In 2005, Israel withdrew completely from the Gaza Strip, leaving it to the Palestinian Authority to run. And in 2007, 2008, Hamas took it over and has been ruling it ever since. And the Gaza periphery has been suffering from rocket barrages ever since. The government developed the Iron Dome to try and defend against rockets in particular. And then uh, those have been continuing. And when there's large rocket attacks, it's developed into small, I would say, compared to what we're going through now, small-scale conflicts, um, short conflicts that have been going on uh, every couple of years or so. And then October 7th came and took everyone by surprise. And like we were saying, it was a massive rocket barrage, which then continued in with what we were understanding was gunfire. And as the calls are coming in, I mean, l- let's go to the end a second, just so we understand what, what we're talking about here and, and what scale we're talking about. For us as an EMS organization to understand that this is developing, Endgame is this was infiltration of 3,000 terrorists from Gaza into the civilian population in 25 cities and towns um, uh, on their Saturday morning and killing everyone in their path, taking... Going house to house. House to house. Shooting people. Shooting, killing, injuring, and kidnapping into the Gaza Strip. Many civilians, adults, elderly people, children, women... Um, and, and, and just regular people waking up to their Saturday morning missile attack. And this was the launch of uh, what was is related to as the Iron Swords War for the first 24, 48 hours was literally liberation of 25 civilian towns right. down south from terrorists. And in the interim, we're talking about treatment of thousands of victims. And if we're talking into EMS terminology, You've all trained for MCIs, mass casualty incidents. You've learned triage. You've learned everything. But has anything ever prepared you for 25 simultaneous MCIs with 1,300 people killed and 5,000 people injured? And and active shooters everywhere you go. I was just about to get Throughout the towns, between on, on the roads between them. Right. This is, is um, an apocalyptic scene that you can't even imagine in your worst dreams. And to make matters worse, you know, the, you mentioned that uh, there was live live fire situations. The terrorists took control of the main highways throughout the region, laid ambushes for first responders, killed first responders, actually tried to actively shoot at first responders to prevent them from arriving at scenes uh, where they could help. They took over a police station in the city of Sderot, which was a major police station, and then also took over their cars and vehicles. So when police showed up at the scene, you didn't know if it was police showing up at the scene or terrorists coming to kill you. And then the flip side of that, there was gunfire between terrorists and civilians 
that were able to kill some terrorists and then taking their AK-47s to kill other terrorists and then they're identified as terrorists and are killed themselves. This was an apocalypse. Yeah. This was an apocalypse. And what we'll try to share with in this episode is really coming from a standpoint of a civilian paramedic, EMT, first responder, responding, the uh, considerations that you need to take, um, the thoughts that go through your head when you see that there's so many people injured and there's simply not enough help. And, and what do you do? How do you triage? How do you treat under fire? Do you go in under fire? Do you not go in under fire? We all know the ground rule of safety first. We've all been raised on it. I've been in the EMS for 33, 34 years already. My, the, the, the first lesson I had when I did my, uh, my basic EMR course back in 1989 was safety first. You don't go into an unsecure scene. But what happens when the scene surrounds you and you wake up to gunshots and explosions of RPG uh, missiles, anti-tank missiles uh, shot at, at civilian cars and, and, and terrorists jumping off of hundred of Toyota trucks, pickup trucks, ISIS style. And what do you do? Right. And nothing prepares <laughs> you for that. Nothing. Prepares I mean, we're you laughing that. a little bit now, but this, this, I, I honestly, hands down, don't even know how to describe the feelings of, of, of how, how we actually acted. I look at this and we've been going, you know, through the debriefs, ever since and learning from every different scene and, 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 and researching every incident along the way there and trying to think how we actually did what we did because we, at the end of this day, 24, 48 hours, treated our own volunteers from our own organization, treated well over 1,400 people. The amount of tourniquets, cat tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, and 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 other treatments that were provided was simply on a scale that used drained out equipment that we use on during a year, literally. Yeah. And we had to get logistics trucks to bring and resupply all the volunteers who were going down south with the supplies they needed to be able to save lives. Because you know each volunteer usually is given one, maybe two cat tourniquets, and <clears throat> we had situations where we had hundreds and thousands of people coming out of let's say the nova sorry the, the nova music festival in Raim. why don't you tell them what the nova festival was <laughs> while they infiltrated 25 towns there was a there was a peace and love music festival that was taking place outside of a town called Raim in a forest in a forest and a field With open thousands tents, of people and thousands of people were down there celebrating the holiday djs music vet, uh, vendors people just enjoying the day and you know, eating, drinking, all sorts of other things. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of. Uh, um, by the way, no joke. This is something to address, uh, Rafael. Is they were all using some sort of drugs in these nature uh, parties, and which really affected their understanding of the situation. When over a hundred terrorists uh, with AK-47s and anti-tank missiles infiltrated this party and started killing, and in total, I think the number was. Over 300 people were yeah. killed in this uh, festival and hundreds, hundreds, hundreds were injured while escaping. And a lot of them were under the influence of alcohol and uh, other substances and, and other substances, uh, which affected their capabilities to respond. Absolutely. And in, in, in postmortem, for lack of a better term, is their psychological situation as a result has been horrendous since. 
And there's actually been a lot of work done with them to to try and help them cope and uh, you know, from a psychological pers- uh, perspective, the whole uh, the, the 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 I guess the psychological first aid machinery of the or- of the whole country has been involved in in helping the people from that festival and from the south, and of course first responders as well. There there really isn't anybody in this country who isn't traumatized right now by what what happened on October seventh from that perspective, and of course you know those people who were killed and injured who are going to be living with the rest of their lives. And and it's really something which is it's it's left its mark and it's making its mark and it's still going to. Uh, so if you haven't realized by now, this is going to be a little bit longer than our usual episode. Possibly, yes, possibly. Let's loop back back to six thirty in the morning when dispatch starts receiving hundreds of calls. At the beginning, like I said, they thought it was missile attacks, and then they're talking about gunshots in the city of Ofakim, gunshots and terrorists in the city of Zderod, gunshots and terrorists in, in the city of Netivot on the highways. And I think what really at, at the music festival where at, they well they the parachuted music, in and it was like yeah they they glided in as well as coming in on the ground but but I think that what really make it made us register was at six fifty nine a.m. we got a call of a massive car accident uh, with many cars at an intersection there on Route two three two down south and 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 I'm thinking to myself Saturday morning six fifty nine a.m. in the most peripheral area. And the, you know, the most, it's like, it's like between farms, there's no way there should be a massive accident there. And that's when, when we registered, okay, this is something of a different scale. And we started deploying our teams from obviously locally, they were all deploying within their towns, but we understood that we're going to need a lot of backup units here. And we started sending uh, hundreds of units from central Israel from Jerusalem and other areas, um, ambulances, emergency response vehicles. And, and people and, in their private cars. And people in their private cars down south. And while the volunteers from the southern town started responding, and I'll give you one story that that occurred at just past, just a little bit past 7 a.m., was one of our volunteers in the city of Zderot deployed on his ambucycle to the nearby police station, which was a, there were reports of uh, a number of police officers that were injured by a missile attack. And as he shows up on scene, um, he he sees a few policemen on the ground. He jumps off his ambicycle, starts treating them when suddenly he sees a terrorist on an ATV with an AK-47 coming towards him shooting. He pulls out his sidearm, which he carries, and he takes out the terrorist. And he gets on the radio and says, okay, the incident is over. The terrorist has been taken out. That's how nobody understood what was going on. He thought there was, was just one, one guy. terrorist. Yeah. And uh, about 10 seconds later, he was uh, hit by a sniper and hit in the, in the face, arm and leg. And the sniper had positioned himself on top of the police station, which had been station. taken over. And for an hour and a half, he was lying in a uh, hiding, uh, injured, treating himself until he was able to be uh, uh, rescued from that area. Right. While and other was- volunteers are, are calling in reports of terrorists shooting at their cars, we've had multiple cars of volunteers full of bullet holes. And, and and when we're talking about miracles, there were simply miracles this day because volunteers were going head on in the field. And when we're talking about safety, when we're talking about safety, it's easy to say, uh, you know, sitting in dispatch and under the fluorescent lights, uh, don't go in. But when you see your own neighbors, literally your neighbors from your community, injured, shot, dying, bleeding out, nobody could stand by, and I recall um, making one of the hardest decisions of my life. 
obviously our volunteers down south are all um, um, they all we, we supplied them in the past already because of the region and the risks with bulletproof vests and helmets and and, and they were responding but we made it I, I made one of the most difficult decisions of my life then as as a operational manager as the VP of operations here that I'm not going to stop anyone from going into treat under fire. On the contrary, I'm going to actually put out an order to say that any volunteer who is willing to go in to the hot zones and treat, make sure you're geared up with protective gear, preferably if you're equipped with a sidearm or, or, or you can team up with a security officer or something that you'll see on the way. But knowingly, I knew that I'm sending the volunteers who are willing to do it to go into harm's way and save other people. And I, I knew that I'll end up paying a big price, luckily, really luckily. And that's why I say miracles. The, the injuries were minor. On this day, well, we treated hundreds and hundreds of critically injured patients. And you need to understand the scene. We're talking about multiple scenes in different towns, not even like in one area. You know, you've got one street and then another street. We're talking about towns that are 10 and 15 miles away from each other all describing the same thing. Dozens and dozens and dozens of terrorists going around shooting in houses on the streets and hundreds of people injured. And what we, what our decision at that moment, because we understood that there were no resources, these are small little rural towns. So every town will have one ambulance, maybe two. And we're talking about hundreds of, of patients that are injured there. And we know that backup units will take time, anywhere between half hour, hour and a half, two hours until... We get massive amounts of ambulances down there. And what the volunteers started doing was actually deploying, putting on tourniquets, multiple tourniquets on patients, throwing them into private cars and of, of either volunteers or civilians and having them drive to the nearby hospital, which is about anywhere between 25 and 35 minutes away from these towns to the nearest by hospital. Uh, understanding that this will be the only thing that will save their lives. And for the first hour and a half, I think about maybe two or 300 civilians were, were treated this way with tourniquets and bandages and chest, chest seals and, and, and you name it. And belts. <laughs> and, and belts and, 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 and improvised and everything. And in private cars, station wagons, back seats of cars, packed in and taken to hospitals. When I'm talking about an apocalypse, none of us, and I've been in EMS for 30 plus years. I've been through terror waves here. Of beginning of the 2000s, I personally responded to over 50 suicide bombers, but nothing ever prepared us for something on this scale and our inability to provide on the highest level like we know. Right. And we're used to providing one scene, maybe two simultaneously in any given area. Here, like you were saying, we had 25 towns and cities that were all affected with mass casualty incidents, uh, and it's something that that overwhelms all, all resources. Uh, we ended up sending down almost a thousand volunteers that day and went down from other places and began treating. We set up two field hospitals. We set up, we, we set up field hospitals slash triage centers in the more uh, distant areas, figure about five miles out, 10 miles out of the, of the uh, serious core hot zones. Right. They were still um, under rocket fire, but yes, relatively safe. We did it in conjunction with the military so that we had protection. And together with the military, the IDF 669 Airborne Unit, which is responsible for the majority of the airlifting out of the patients. Just to put it into perspective, the nearest by hospitals, well, I said there's one about 
25 to 35 minutes away. And the nearest other nearest trauma center is about another half hour in the other direction. And, and you can imagine these are not major, major facilities. When you're talking about hundreds of patients that will be overwhelming the hospitals, we needed to think about that factor as well. And, and we we're started talking taking about, medevacing patients to further hospitals further away. So the nearest by hospital, actually, just to understand numbers, on October 7th received over 800 victims. This one ER in Beersheba received almost 800 uh, victims from the scene. The Ashkelon Hospital received about 500. And, and we're talking about over overloading of hospitals. To, to Who are on skeleton crew anyways, because it's Shabbat and it's our Saturday and it's, and it's a holiday. And, and, and the, some of the teams that were on the way to the hospitals to staff them were killed in the way. Also. Yeah. So uh, it definitely apocalyptic, as, as you mentioned before. You mentioned the thing about tourniquets, and and we talked about our logistics center already sending down trucks with equipment and emptying out our supplies for the entire year. To put that in perspective, there was, uh, I I talked about the the Nova Festival at Reim, where we ended up with, there were over 300 killed, and like you said, hundreds more injured. Most of those injuries involved people coming out with three or four gunshot wounds and three or four tourniquets, one on each limb, plus bandages on their chest for more gunshot wounds and just you know there was not one volunteer that had all that equipment that had to be done where we got to the triage center the patient was brought in or came on their own in a lot of cases and we were taking all the equipment out from all of the bags utilizing what we needed what we had going through all of the equipment even the oxygen tanks were were depleted there and then we had to bring in logistics trucks to come down and, and supplies more. It was, it was actually more. interesting. Also under fire. Yes, absolutely. And it was also actually interesting to see the collaboration that was made on the ground with the military medical corps, which were being deployed from their homes, reserves and whatnot that were deploying down south and teaming up with our uh, logistical teams, taking equipment from our equipment and, and going in to the villages head on with the terrorists um, and then and then minutes or hours later having them come out injured or unfortunately dead. We're talking about, like I said, 1,300 people were killed on this day in sites that we will not go into on this podcast, but sites that we all remember the ISIS videos from years ago. The sites that we saw down there put those videos to shame. What was down there was was sites that, that we're still treating hundreds of our volunteers for exposed to uh, uh, to sites no one could ever imagine, no human should be exposed to. And in the midst of that is trying to sift through and find those who can still be saved and actually save their lives. And when we were looking at statistics of the numbers of patients we transported, in our ambulances alone, we transported about 450 patients, 450 or 500 patients in our ambulances to the hospitals and our helicopters. But we were looking through in, in the days after, researching the type of injuries, severity of injuries, and more than 50% of the victims is, uh, you would put, you would tag as red with multiple gunshots, blast injuries, uh, severe burns, and the survival rate from this incident was tremendous. Tremendous. Of those who were actually treated, the survival rate was amazing. Amazing. However, one of the lessons learned that this is not for EMS, this was more for the hospital level, 
was there's a lot of discussion here in the medical world about many limbs that ended up needing to be amputated because of the lengthy time it took until they were treated while having tourniquets on them right. in and the not being secondary triage to uh, to other hospitals. And that's a big discussion here and understanding the, um, this, this incident. However, like I said, in the field, the life-saving procedures, tremendous. Whether, whether it was chest drains, chest seals, um, uh, hemostatic dressings, packing, um, tourniquets, of course. It, it, it simply saved lives of hundreds and hundreds of people on this day. And, and, and I, I say that we were looking, you know, the volunteers here throughout the year, in the past two years, actually, we've invested a lot in training our volunteers in trauma, in packing, in, in MCIs, in, in MCIs, in cat tourniquets, in, in all of these treatments to the highest level. And in the field, we saw how it paid off, looking Very at much the, so, the yeah. reports and, and even understanding when you see the combat medics that were drafted from, their, from reserves uh, did not know how to uh, effectively use these tools while our volunteers were there working with them and saving and saving lives. And just an interesting piece of data is I just read recently from uh, data coming out of the IDF in this, in this war from the combat zone. This is just, you know, sliding away a little bit from the center, but looking at, at war related injuries, there is a survival rate of those soldiers were evacuated in this process of the last 100 days from the field, severely injured. We're talking about a survival rate of 95%. 95% because we've been able to up the game of the treatment in the field, in the combat field even, to levels that were have not been known before, whether it's bringing blood, plasma, um, uh, and, and other uh, capabilities to the field. And, and bring to the hospitals, the survival rates of those who aren't killed on scene is tremendous and unprecedented. And we saw that also in the civilian arena where we were acting in a war zone in our own towns in our backyard. Right. So let's talk about like the triage and, and triage centers and um, field hospitals that were set up originally. They basically comprise of uh, we, our, our, our uh, treatment plan, which was really uh, you know, layers upon layers of responders, those going out into the towns themselves, treating the most severely injured people at the time, and then transporting them to our triage centers. Triage centers then providing the next level of care, and from then on to taking them to hospital, medevacs with helicopters. Uh, our, our helicopter teams were, were in full service that day, transporting patients back and forth from hospitals. And... Uh, continuing on, the the people who came down weren't just on the level of EMTs or even paramedics. We actually had doctors, trauma surgeons who left what they were doing, left their families. They weren't on call that day in the hospitals where they're coming from, from the center of the country, from Jerusalem, from even further north. They went down south and they ended up staying for not a few hours. They ended up staying for days. For days. They, yeah, because the triage process there, it was interesting. We set up, like a, like we mentioned, these triage centers, field hospitals, that not only were our volunteers bringing patients out to, victims out to, but civilians were just grabbing the victims from the streets in their homes, throwing them in cars, and escaping towards 
the near hospital, and we set up these centers on the highways of these country roads. Highways. It's a country road. On these country roads in the areas which were a bit more distant from the hot zone, by dozens, cars were piling up one after another, civilian cars with victims in them, and they were all pulled out of the cars. They were triaged, treated. Some of them field surgery. They're literally stabilized and then thrown onto the helicopter or the ambulances out to the hospitals. And the doctors played an incredibly important role in this, actually performing treatments at the triage center as much as they could, and then passing the patient off. And that saved an incredible amount of lives as well. The triage centers were mainly staffed by paramedics, by doctors. And then a lot of the EMTs were going out more in the field. Also, paramedics went out the field too and brought the patients to those triage centers. The IDF was bringing patients to the triage centers. Like you said, civilians were bringing them to the triage centers. And we already got in contact with a lot of the security teams from each of the towns and told them please, if you have people, bring them out here. So so part of that process uh, was because what happened was on October 7th in the morning, the, the government system collapsed, okay? Well, it just didn't wake up. It, it just didn't yeah, wake up. Yeah, it just didn't <laughs> wake up. And as a volunteer organization, what we did was working on the ground based off of our experience of training and MCI exercises and whatnot, there were ad hoc connections with security forces on the ground in every town, creating sort of a uh, initial triage spot while security was fighting terrorists inside the neighborhood. Then on the corner, on the exit of the neighborhood, you'll have an initial triage center there. Put on tourniquets, bandages, whatever, chest drain, onto a car and out to this triage center, which was out of town. Uh, Additionally, we opened up in a few of the police stations in these Southern cities triage centers because we knew that people will be running towards the police stations. And these connections with the security forces on the ground created, I would say at at, at peak, we had something like 30 different triage spots throughout the Southern cities and Southern region, plus our centers on the country roads there. And, And this enabled us to really provide that initial stop the bleed or chest seal or whatnot immediately as close as possible to the injury while combat was still going on with terrorists inside the neighborhoods, inside the cities and under gunfire escaping with their cars with victims out towards the hospitals. This is something that even as I say it, I still can't believe um, as I keep replaying this. Now, a lot of our ambulances and vehicles have uh, cameras on them. The trans- well, I think before we get there, let's focus on how we manage those 30 triage centers and all these layers of volunteers and people going down and, and keeping it organized amid the chaos. It's, it's, it's a huge shout out to our dispatch center and to the team that was here. You were here along with a lot of the other leadership of the organization. And the dispatch was really the brains behind coordinating this together with obviously the security apparatus and their dispatches. But there was there there has no, to be a, there was a, no connection with security dispatchers. Every dispatch center of police, government ambulance, and whatnot all collapsed, all collapsed. Right. This was literally you're on your own. You are on your own in the biggest, most horrific terror attack in the history of Israel. So we understood we were totally on our own, and that means connecting making on-the-ground ad hoc connections to security officers, police, 
IDF uh, personnel, whoever it is on the ground, teaming up with them in every city and every town. Now, when we're talking about towns, we're talking about three little cities, towns. They wrote Netivot and Ofakim. Each one has about 40 or 50,000 people. And then we're talking about 22 little villages, kibbutz, that uh, in each and every one of them was overtaken by dozens and dozens of terrorists. So while- and Each one's about four or 500 families. We're or talking about, yeah. 200, each one. Each one. And we're talking about massacres that were being performed in these villages. So while security, IDF, special forces are, are in combat head on with the terrorists inside these villages, some of our volunteers who live in these villages opened up triage centers in their backyard, literally. In their houses, yeah. In their houses, understanding that there is no way to leave at that moment and under fire treating victims in these scenes while we try to send ambulances to the gates of these little villages as a secondary triage center and from there to be sent out either to the helicopter pads or to our major triage center. And this was something that we understood that there is no big boss. There is no no one managing the big picture here. So from here at HQ in Jerusalem, our dispatch center, we opened up immediately early in the morning in EOC right next to it, which was creating the heat map of what was going on and assisting dispatch and making their decisions where to send ambulances, resources, helicopters based upon the needs. And yet, as much as we wanted, we weren't able to provide everything because we're just an amazing organization, but we're not the government service. Correct. The, it was it was so overwhelming that, that no one agency could do everything. But we did what we could. The volunteers in the field did what they could. The dispatchers did what they could. The, the triage centers did what they could. And of course, the field hospitals did as well. I want to do just a, a, another sort of like a quick put in the people's mind exactly what was going on in dispatch for that moment by using one story, one short story that you were saying before. To understand this story, we have to take it back, not a notch, but quite a bit through history and go back to the Gulf War that was taking place in Iraq and the fallout that came in Israel were, of course, the Scud missiles that were being launched. 39 Scud missiles. Scud missiles are being launched at the country. From that point on, the Israeli government has said any building, any residential building that's built has to have a safe room. And the safe rooms played it in- Midwest would call them- or Tornado shelters. Tor- tor- yeah, tornado <laughs> shelters. Tor- tornado Alley would call the tornado shelters. Right. Except these safe rooms are in the house. They're not in the middle of the backyard. They're in the house. They're reinforced concrete with steel bars in the room itself that's closed by a metal door that only can only be opened with one handle. And these safe rooms were- They saved many lives. People were-, were whole- Wait, uh, you're forgetting one thing. These safe rooms have a handle, but don't have a lock. Correct. And uh, that created a situation where hundreds of people are in their safe room thinking they're protecting themselves from rockets, but they have terrorists coming into their house, shooting the doors, and they need to literally with their own hands hold the handle so the terrorists can't get in. So the terrorists are torching the houses on fire in order to choke the people inside the rooms. And, and unfortunately, many people were killed in the safe rooms. I was going to get to that, but yeah. Uh, Sorry. That's okay. Um, I'm you, traumatized. You can, you can steal my I'm, I'm a PTSD explosion, especially uh, after uh, October 7th. Understandably, we, we all are. So one story from the safe room from where I believe the person managed to survive, if I'm not mistaken, and, and this relates back to our dispatch, is the family was was 
staying in the safe room, or at least the, the children made it to the safe room, and the parents stayed outside, if I'm not mistaken, in this story, to confront the terrorists. The parents were killed, and a young woman was in the safe room and called dispatch for help and was talking to the dispatcher. And the safe room, they managed to hold the handle to prevent the terrorists from coming in, but they didn't know when it was safe to leave. The terrorists were still in the town and stayed in the town for a very long time. We had one dispatcher who stayed on the phone with this young woman for over 12 hours, 12 hours. keeping her calm, being the only voice that she could hear. With a psychotrauma specialist. With the psychotrauma specialist, connecting her with the psychotrauma specialist and giving her counseling, giving her guidance how to stay alive in the safe room for 12 hours by herself when the world was literally collapsing around her or going up in flames, whichever euphemism you want to use. That gives you a little bit of understanding of like what important point the, the dispatch played, not just in coordinating efforts and coordinating the volunteers, but also from the standpoint of the people who called and made those phone calls in, and also how many resources we need to dispatch. Because if that one dispatcher is being tied up for 12 hours by the young woman, we need more dispatchers to still answer the calls because we're getting thousands and thousands of calls simultaneously into the dispatch at the time. To add on to that is is not only you know giving the psychological support to these kids in this situation, but our dispatchers were doing instructions over the phone. Some of the technology that we have here, I don't know if many of you are familiar with it. Whenever, whenever anyone calls our emergency center here, we automatically send you a text message, a WhatsApp. You press the link and then we have your location. And we have live video feeding from your cell phone. We can text back and forth. And we performed hundreds of calls of people that have been injured by the terrorists in the different safe rooms, houses, on the roads, and dispatchers via the video call with them, instructing them how to improvise tourniquets on bleeding patients while it took sometimes hours until they were able to get help to them in order to evacuate them in certain areas that were still swarming with terrorists. So we're talking about hundreds of calls that dispatchers were instructing people, literally, how to improvise tourniquets, how to stop bleed, how to open airways, and whatnot. This is something on epic levels that I I, I cannot remember. Right. And the technology we use, can we give a shout out to the, our partner there? Absolutely. Uh, Car- Carbine. Carbine, which is a wonderful company. And the technology saved hundreds of lives on October 7th, as well as in the past and continuing to do so. And that was that was technology, which was incredible. We, we, when we brought that in a few years ago, when, when did we bring that in? Yeah, we brought it in about five years about ago. Five years ago. We've been using it ever since. One of the other uses of it in non-war time is also in Israel, we, we're not allowed to get the geolocation from people's cell phones. They have to push the link to give the agreement that we can use their location and then we can send responders directly to them. And that situation where people are on the roads, they don't know exactly where they are. They don't have a precise location. We can use it in those instances. It also works if we're dealing with a community that's hard of hearing or hearing impaired and can't hear a dispatcher or talk to a dispatcher on the phone. We can send them the link and they can get a video conference call with someone and then be able to talk to the dispatchers that way as well. So very useful technology in a lot of different ways. And on October 7th, we saw exactly how effective it was in in saving lives when being able to see the issue that the patient and the person next to them were dealing with and then instructing that person how to treat that patient themselves. So I think, Rafael, we could go on and on for hours especially with the hundreds of hours of debrief that we've been doing on this incident, on this attack that launched the war here in Israel. And I'll just mention that while dealing with October 7th and the war down south, Israel in general, it doesn't end there because the northern border here is under the imminent threat of Hezbollah. And the 
to understand, we have about 300,000 Israeli refugees that have been evacuated from dozens and dozens of towns near the northern border and the southern border that are now refugees in different uh, community centers, hotels, and whatnot, away from their homes for already over three months. Schools, dormitories. And we're in constant preparation for the opening of a northern front of a more significant war. So it really is trying to look back at what we've done and looking forward at what potentially can happen. So operationally, we're in the, in the midst we're, of we're still in the middle of it. training, yeah. restocking, deploying, and, and preparing for, for the worst that might still be ahead of us. But if we want to sum up and look at a little bit of the numbers that occurred on October 7th, we're talking about a total of about 5,000 people that were injured on this day, 1,300 that were killed, murdered. And as far as volunteers, over a thousand volunteers, paramedics, doctors, EMTs that left their homes, put themselves in harm's way to go out and save lives. And we're talking about over a thousand people that were treated by our volunteers alone, almost 500 transported to hospitals by our volunteers and ambulances, and a few hundred more in private cars of volunteers. I think it was it's it's a historic event for our organization, for this country. And I feel very humbled looking on an event like this, which will go down in history and seeing what a significant part the volunteers, the men and women, Jews, Arabs, Christian, secular, uh, Orthodox, everyone taking part in this life-saving mission selflessly, selflessly saving hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on this horrific day and hoping for much better days. Absolutely. And uh, like you said, it's still ongoing. Like we're we're still dealing with rocket attacks on a regular daily basis, multiple times a day. We're still dealing with civilians who are injured. We're still dealing with terror attacks that are being perpetrated by Hamas members, whether they're coming from Gaza or other places. This is this is still an ongoing situation. We're not in a, any sort of post-op at this point. We're still in the middle of it, and it's uh, it's it's taking its toll on everybody. But we're doing the best we can to stay united, regardless of who we are. And of course, to do what we do every day and what we do best, and that's save lives. So thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll continue this a little bit in our next episode. And uh, yeah, uh, hope, hope we didn't traumatize you too much. Hoping for better days. 